Today's reading comes from Matthew 5, 2-3. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You may be seated. As you're seated, let me pray. Uh, Father, we thank you for the sermon of Jesus. We thank you for the teaching of Jesus. We thank you for the comfort of your spirit. We pray that as we engage deeply with the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount this morning, looking at the Beatitudes and what it means to be in the kingdom of heaven, Lord, we ask you that you would strengthen the resolve in our lives to serve you in every way. And God, we ask you for your peace in our midst, that you would still our hearts from the anxious things going on around us, and that you would open a a pathway to life for us this morning where we can learn to walk with you in deeper measure, in, in greater ways. Help us to do this, God, because we desperately need you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, C.S. Lewis um, did a series of radio addresses in the 40s during the Second World War talking about really the essence of Christianity. And that was then later published in a book in the 50s uh, that we now have, one of the most popular Christian books that's ever been written called Mere Christianity. In Mere Christianity, he said this, all that we call human history, money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empires, slavery... It's all the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God, which will make him happy. Um, Now, in general, I think C.S. Lewis learned that like anybody could, just by an overview of history. But in specific, uh, C.S. Lewis learned that from his Bible. He learned that from his Bible, that the, the, the horrors of human history, the things that have gone on, the struggles and pains that have been so evident in the world around us can be traced to finding or seeking to find happiness outside of God. The desire to be happy is is normal. Where we find our happiness can oftentimes, as we look at history and we look at the scriptures and unite them together, we find that there can be destruction outside of God in that sense. Um, The Roman philosopher in the first century in the Roman Empire, his name is Seneca, so he would have been a contemporary of Jesus, when Jesus in his earthly ministry was alive, Seneca would have also been doing some uh, philosophy work in the Roman Empire. He would have been a contemporary then of, of early disciples like Peter and Paul. This is a guy who's writing at that same time. So 1900 years earlier than C.S. Lewis wrote that, this is what Seneca said. He said, there is not anything in this world perhaps that is more talked of and less understood than the business of a happy life. It is every person's wish and design Yet not one in a thousand knows wherein that happiness consists. We live, however, in a blind and eager pursuit of it. And the more haste we make in a wrong way, the further we are from our journey's end. What he's saying is is that everybody is aiming at a happy life, seeking a happy life, trying to find a way of being happy. He wrote that 1900 years before C.S. Lewis, and they're both right. If this was something that was on the mind of a philosopher in the first century in the Roman Empire, then we need to be aware of a religious teacher, a rabbi in the first century Roman Empire who was doing some teaching in the region of Galilee and in Judea and moved into Jerusalem at times and taught. 
a contemporary of Seneca who would have observed the same problems in life, that everybody is aiming for a happy life, we need to know that Jesus would have had this question asked of him. What does it mean to be happy? How do I get a hold of that happiness and find fulfillment in my life in that way? What does it mean to live a blessed life? It's a question that any teacher in that era of history, and I would say all the way on till now, has to be able to answer. Now, Jesus was going around and he was preaching, as we saw last Sunday, the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. We saw this in Matthew chapter 4. He was calling people to turn away from where they had put their hopes and where they had tried to ground their happiness to find the blessed life. And and he told them and called them to turn away from that and to see that there was a different way to live with a different point to the whole story of what it means to be human. There's a different point in how to relate to God, how to relate to one another, and then how to relate to the whole world around us. This is what Jesus was preaching about. And part of that preaching and part of that story that he is inviting his hearers into is how to be happy, how to find true happiness in life. So when people ask, what does it mean to be happy or what does it mean to be blessed? I think this is what Jesus did. I I just imagine him teaching and he had people following around. He was doing signs, wonders, and miracles, healing the sick, casting out demons, stuff that people had never seen before. And he's got this crowd of people and they're going, Jesus, what does it mean to have a blessed life? Here's what I think he, he says, cool. Great question. Why don't you all sit down? I have a sermon for you. Seeing the crowds, Matthew 5, 1, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and taught them, saying in the beginning of his sermon, his first words are, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Not persecuted because you're a jerk, persecuted for righteousness' sake, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Now obviously he goes on, which is why we have a longer sermon series than just this, but we're going to be looking at how to take hold of the good life, the blessed life Jesus is talking about over the next eight weeks or so. This is the text we're going to be in. What I've just read are called the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes, that that word comes from the Latin, which basically just means blessed. The Beatitudes, the, the blessedness. Here's what they really are. I think, and my hope is, that after this morning, I'll have convinced you that they are an invitation to a flourishing life. That they are an invitation to true blessedness. Even I would say, and I would go so far as to say, that they're an invitation on how to have a happy life. They are an invitation into a new kingdom vision, so a new way of seeing the world. They're an invitation to how we can perceive everything going on around us all the time and how we can interpret that in light of what is really true. A new kingdom vision for life. Uh, They are, at the very same time, an invitation to true flourishing, like I said, but they are also then a promise that ultimately 
all will be well because in Jesus' kingdom, he has come to make all things new. So they are at the very same time, and this is important, they are an invitation into a way of life that will cause human flourishing, your flourishing in life, and they are at the same time as that, a promise that everything is going to be okay. We're going to talk about this today by looking at the context of the blessed life, the meaning of the blessed life, the center of the blessed life, and the entrance into the blessed life. It's the rare four-point sermon at Christ City Church. The context of the blessed life, the meaning, the center, and the entrance into the blessed life. Uh, last week, we talked a lot about the preacher of the mount. Here we now begin actually looking at the Sermon on the Mount itself. Uh, to set the context for the blessed life, we need to see that this is kingdom of heaven teaching. Kingdom of heaven teaching. Jesus has been preaching the good news of the kingdom like we looked at last week in Matthew chapter 4. And like I mentioned just a moment ago, he's preaching the kingdom of heaven to all who will come to him and, and to all who will come and make their home in him, who find a home in the kingdom of heaven who are becoming citizens, residents of the kingdom of heaven. He tells them, and he says, sit down, I'm going to explain this to you. The the good news of the kingdom of heaven is something that we talk about here a lot around the gospel. We would put it under the title gospel. It just means good news. Jesus is preaching the good news of the kingdom of heaven. So this is Jesus, gospel of the kingdom of heaven. The, the, The gospel of the kingdom of heaven is that Jesus has come. And that with him, he brings good news that heaven is breaking into earth. Heaven is not a far off place. But that Jesus came to bring heaven to earth. The kingdom of heaven is here. Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is near. There's something going on in our midst. And God is breaking into it in Christ. The long-awaited Savior has come. We looked at this last week that Jesus is the prophet that Moses said they should wait for. The long-awaited Savior who was promised all the way back in Genesis, in the first book of the Bible, all the way until Jesus arrived, he was the promise. He is the fulfillment of that promise coming to bear on human beings and all the world. Jesus, the fulfillment of that promise has come. Um, Jesus' adoptive father, Joseph, was told to name him Jesus, Matthew one twenty one, for he will save his people from their sins. This is the kingdom of heaven coming near. The long-awaited Savior has come to save his people from their sins and to usher them into a new kingdom life here and now, here and now, and forevermore. It's not one or the other. It's not all here and now, only here and now. And it's not all one day in the sweet by and by. It's now and then. And we're going to talk about it because this is the context for the Beatitudes. The blessed life is set within the context of the kingdom of heaven. The good news that he brings, the good news of the kingdom of heaven is that in him there is a way from darkness into light. The good news of Jesus is that he opens a door to new life that nobody can close. He has opened that door. The good news that he brings is that we can move from the kingdom of darkness and be transferred into his kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus. 
It's the good news that we were dead in our sin and trespasses and have now been made alive in him. That's the good news of his kingdom. It's that Jesus has come and because of what he has taught and what he is teaching his disciples and what he does with the rest of his life in terms of modeling this and then what he does through his death and resurrection for us, it's, it's that we might enter into this new life, into this new kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom of God, the good news of the kingdom of heaven is that God saves sinners in Christ and that he ushers them into the new reality of his kingdom. It's where we take up residence. It's a different kind of kingdom because we serve a different kind of king. Jesus' message to anyone who would hear him, Matthew 4.17, was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repenting is stopping what you're doing and stopping in the direction that you're moving, recognizing that it's it's not right, it's wrong, it's, it's headed in a wrong direction. It's hearing the message, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And it's stopping and it's turning around that you might walk with Jesus. That he might lead you into his kingdom. It's changing your mind about the direction and the aim of your life, the end goal of your life, the trajectory of your life. It's changing your mind about that and turning from one thing to another. It's turning away from that where you placed your hope and that in which you placed your hope and turning toward him that he might reveal to you the true blessedness of living in his kingdom. The context of the blessed life is the kingdom of heaven. It's about following him and realizing that repentance is not only an entry point into the kingdom of heaven, but it is the way of life in the kingdom of heaven. We are constantly always turning away from things that we are tempted to place our hope and trust in and repenting and turning back to keep our eyes on Jesus and walk with him. The gospel of the kingdom, it's a complete shift in, I think, a comprehensive enough way that it's going to take our whole life to get there, to understanding it, to learning it, to living it. It's not something that happens once. That's why repentance is not a one-time thing. It's an ongoing reality. All of our life is called to be one of repentance. And so the gospel of the kingdom of heaven is so big and so comprehensive that there's actually not anything in our lives that is not touched by it. And that's why Jesus is going to take us through several scenarios in our lives over the coming weeks through this text and then even beyond in the Sermon on the Mount to show us that the gospel of the kingdom of heaven is an all-of-life reality that we enter into through repentance, that we maintain our walk with Jesus through repentance. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The context of the blessed life is the kingdom of heaven. If you want a definition of kingdom, there's a more robust definition in the Sermon on the Mount booklets that you can look at in the beginning stages of that book. But this is where we find the blessed life. It's where we understand what Jesus means when he says the blessed life. So if this is where we find it, then we do have to, to figure out what is the meaning of the blessed life? How do we take hold of that? How are we to comprehend that? Just read through the Beatitudes with me. They're weird, right? Like, they're counterintuitive. They're strange. They're one of those things that you read and you, and you either go, ah, I quit. That doesn't make sense, right? Just let's be honest. Or you read and you go, I'm sure there is, is like gold to be mined here. And I maybe presently don't have the time or the ability to mine it properly. And so we're going to actually do that as a community over like the next eight weeks. We're going to look at these. Because they're weird. 
They don't seem to make sense, except I think on a second and third and a fourth reading, they become just profound truths that will shape the way that we conceive of the kingdom of heaven. This will help us to to define the blessed life, to find the meaning of it. Just read through it. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is, notice that, the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Look at this. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The first and the last of the blessed are statements is a present reality that it is yours. Blessed are these people, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The second through seventh of our list, blessed are, for they shall, future tense. Theirs is, and they shall. I want you to notice that there's a tension between what already is in the kingdom of heaven and what is not yet in the kingdom of heaven. It helps explain so much of our New Testament to us and really the totality of Scripture when we recognize that the kingdom of heaven is an already and not yet idea, reality. The the reality really is that the followers of Jesus who are in his kingdom, so if you're a follower of Jesus, you are in his kingdom. You already have new life. You already have the salvation that he offers. You have come into his kingdom because of his good news of the kingdom. You've, you've, you've taken hold of it already. But in a sense, we don't fully have it yet. There's an already and a not yet tension. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They shall be comforted. They shall see God. They shall be satisfied. They shall. So for us in 2019, sitting here in this room in the city of Vancouver, if we're followers of Jesus, we believe that he rules and reigns over the whole universe. He's a big deal. We believe that. That is already true. But we have not yet seen the full realization of his rule and reign over all things. In a sense, his kingship, his rule is not known by all. In a sense, the values of his kingdom and his kingship is not yet seen by all because there are lots of things going on in our world that are not in line and in sync with his kingdom. And that's because we live in the time between his death, crucifixion, and ascension, where he rules and reigns, and we are awaiting his eventual return when he makes all things new. It's important that we locate ourselves in the kingdom of heaven already, recognizing we've not seen the fullness of it quite yet. We've got glimpses of the kingdom of heaven breaking in, but we await the full reality of the fullness of his kingdom. That's why Jesus teaches us to pray this later in the Sermon on the Mount. Our Father in heaven, Matthew 6. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He's saying, you need to pray. Your kingdom come. Breaking in here and now, in the midst of us, in and through us, all around us. Lord, we pray your kingdom come in Vancouver as it is in heaven. And teach us to walk in the tension of knowing that we have received the already, but we are awaiting the not yet. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven, and they shall be 
a whole host of things. We're seeking the coming of the kingdom. It's, it's already, but not yet fully realized. For theirs is, they shall. This sermon is born from the context of the kingdom of Jesus in that tension. It's a very important component of understanding the blessed life. Um, 21st century, this is one of the problems. 21st century English just does not contain the language to communicate this phrase, this word, this blessed life. Blessed are the poor in spirit. There's a Greek word behind the English word blessed that is so robust, it's like all of this meaning is crammed into it. And so we would say, what should we say other than blessed? Instead of blessed, we could say happy. It just doesn't really cut it. It's not full enough. Because happy is too often associated with like a psychological state of our emotions, right? Happy is tied to the happenings of our life, the circumstances going on around us. And so happy would work, but it's a little bit light in the way that we understand the word happy. Instead of blessed, when we're aiming at the meaning of the blessed life, instead of blessed, maybe we could say flourishing. And I think that would be proper and right. It doesn't really cut it in the way that we usually use flourishing. Flourishing is this word that we would talk about when we have like momentary or even like sustained momentary success in our life where, where we're thriving. So my marriage is flourishing. My family is flourishing. I'm flourishing at school. I'm flourishing. I never flourished at school ever. I'm flourishing. That was a bad example. I'm fl- it just seemed very inauthentic. It, I'm flourishing in my job. I'm flourishing in whatever it is that you do. Right? There's a momentary thriving that's going on. And that's, it's true. It's part of it. But it's not the word that can carry the full weight of the meaning of what Jesus is really trying to say about the blessed life. In lots of ways, the word blessed is 100% the right word. Except that our culture has ripped the word blessed out of its context and then just gutted it of meaning, which we love to do in the Western world. We love to take words that are ancient and have tons of meaning and then make them mean whatever we think they mean. That's what we do in our day and age. We just gut it of its meaning. And I, like the old curmudgeon I am, blame social media. Blast. It's such a rich word. Jessica Bennett in the New York Times, she wrote a piece that said, calling something blessed has become the go-to term for those who want to boast about an accomplishment while pretending to be humble. Fish for a compliment, acknowledging a success without sounding too conceited, or purposely elicit envy. So blessed. Mm, Look at my blessed body. At the gym, blessed. I was at the gym, and if you're here this morning, I I apologize, but there's a, a wonderful young gal who spent 10 minutes getting the right selfie in front of the mirror, you just know she tagged that blessed. Right? I was blessed. Like, cool. <laughs> okay. Like, blessed. Am I saying that to evoke envy in someone? I'm so blessed by this opportunity. So blessed by my $25,000 vacation. Blessed. My wife, oh, I'm so blessed, which really means she's better than your wife. Right? So I want you to know that. I hope she hears me say this. What are we saying when we say blessed? What do we mean? 
Jessica Bennett goes on. She says, the overuse of the word is all but stripped it of its meaning. Now it's like strawberries are half price at Trader Joe's. I feel so blessed. <laughs> so for us, we've taken this, this beautiful full word blessed, but it, in our context, doesn't carry the full weight of what Jesus wanted it to carry in the time that he said it. So do we just get rid of the word? No, I, I think it's worth fighting for. I think it's worth fighting for. It's worth, it's worth redeeming in that sense. Let's, let's redeem it, repackage it with the fullness of the meaning that's supposed to be there, and then use it. And then when we use it, know what we mean when we're saying it. It's not half-priced strawberries. There's something else going on. See, when Jesus said this, He meant something that carried, this this term carried the weight of God's covenantal blessing. He meant something that is a relational word that speaks of being in right relationship with God, but it also speaks to the happy state of the person who has been invited to walk in relationship with God. It means that. It means that when a person has been invited to walk in relationship with God, it reorients all of their circumstances around that relationship and that invitation and the promises that are contained therein. And you now see your whole life not circumstantially being happy, but because you are invited into a covenantal relationship with God where he blesses you and you are blessed in him, you are invited into that. Now your circumstances are interpreted through that lens. Redefines the circumstances of life. So no matter if things are going well or things are going poorly, in light of the future not yet promises that are made here, in light of that invitation to walk in relationship with all of those future not yet promises, we know that everything's going to work out because God said it will. And so when you get the diagnosis, when you get the bad news, when you get the pink slip, when you have the miscarriage, when you can't get along any longer and you don't know what to do, when you get that circumstance in your life, you can feel sadness, but this word, blessed, is enough to carry you through it. Because you're reinterpreting that negative circumstance in light of the already nature of the kingdom, but really in light of the future, not yet promises that are coming to bear upon you in Christ. In this way, then, it's not merely a statement about how God sees you, which is blessed. It's, that's true, but it's not, it's not the fullness of it. It isn't merely a statement about how you feel in your circumstances, which, again, could be happy, could be sad. It has more to do about, uh, with being invited into the kind of life whereby you can truly flourish. It's an invitation to walk with Jesus and flourish in spite of your circumstances and through your circumstances. You don't define flourishing as it's materialistically defined around us. You define it through this heavily weighted word, blessed. means we find our blessedness, our happiness, our flourishing in any and every circumstance because we are importing the future not yet 
that is promised to us into the present already of our circumstances. Let me say that again. This is going to help us for the next eight weeks. We find our blessedness and our happiness and our flourishing in any and every circumstance because we are importing the future, not yet part of the kingdom that is promised to us. We are importing that into our present already circumstances. So so this is part of the problem of teaching the Beatitudes. Um, Scott McKnight said in his commentary, Get this one, uh, on this one word, the entire passage stands, and from this one word, the whole list hangs. So it's kind of a big deal. He says, get this word right, the rest falls into place. Get it wrong, and the whole thing falls apart. We need to drill down and get it right. We need to drill down and get it right. So let me give you my working definition. There, again, in your booklets, there's a couple pages, I think, on this word. I'm going to give you ten words as a definition for one word instead of five paragraphs for a definition of one word. And if you want, you can borrow some of my books because I have entire books on this word. So let me boil it down to ten words for you. You okay? Happy, flourishing, and in right relations with God and others. Happy, flourishing, and in right relation with God and others. It deals with our vertical connection whereby we understand ourselves as invited into relationship with God in Christ. It deals with the reality of our others and the world around us because there is something that we've been called to and unified by that transcends us as individuals, but also happy. I like happy. Happy's good. Happy, though, can be yours in spite of your circumstances and so can flourishing. Whether you're succeeding or failing, you can flourish in the midst of that if you understand the definition of blessed this way. The context of the blessed life is in the kingdom of heaven. The meaning of the blessed life we've just looked at. And let me show you very quickly the center of the blessed life. The center. I owe this idea to a scholar named Jonathan Pennington. He said, here at the beginning of the sermon, Jesus gives a vision of a way of being in the world that will result in our flourishing. It's a vision of a way of being, he says. So based on what? Jesus' vision of this way of being, the kingdom of heaven that he has invited us into, this blessed life that he is inviting us into, it's actually not just an idea to Jesus. He's not like some remote teacher who has some ideas that he's never experienced, but he's got an idea about it. He's the center of the blessed life, specifically because he is the embodiment of the blessed life, and he is the example of living the blessed life. So if you go through the list of Beatitudes and you're looking at it and you go, okay, so we've got the poor in spirit, we've got those who mourn, we've got the meek, the hungry and thirsty who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness, we've got the merciful, we've got the pure in heart, we've got the peacemakers, we've got those who are persecuted. And you're going, how does that connect to Jesus? Let me show you. Jesus is the one who is humble and poor in spirit. Matthew 11, 28, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for, for, because I am gentle and lowly in heart. You'll find rest for your souls. Second, Jesus mourns and grieves over the state of his people. Matthew 23. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing He's mourning over the state of his people. He has experienced godly sorrow. He, standing outside of the tomb of Lazarus, 
In John chapter 11, it says, he wept. Third, Jesus hungers and thirsts. He, he longs with compassion for the coming of God's kingdom. It says in Matthew 9, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest and send out laborers into his harvest. He's longing for the coming of the kingdom because he is filled with compassion at the lostness of the lost. Fourth, when he was tempted by Satan, we see that Jesus is pure in heart. Matthew 4, 10. And Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Jesus was not compromising. He was pure in heart. Jesus is merciful. There's so many examples of the mercy of Jesus. Let me show you one I like. In Matthew 20, verse 30, Behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And the crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. All the way through scripture, we see God is merciful. And Christ lived out that mercy. Through his death and resurrection, Jesus brings peace. We saw this two weeks ago in John chapter 20 on the evening of that day, the resurrection Sunday, the first day of the week. The doors being locked where the disciples were for, the fear, of Jew, for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. Jesus is the true peacemaker. He's the true peacemaker. Blessed are the peacemakers, it says in chapter 5, verse 9, for they shall be called sons of God. Jesus is the peacemaker. And then in Jesus' life, he suffered injustice and persecution like no one else. Never was there a less deserving person to go through what he went through. When he was falsely condemned, he was mocked, he was beaten, he was spat upon, he was crucified, and then what he, he was killed. He was put to death. So what I'm saying is that you can correlate the list of the people in the Beatitudes, the descriptions of what a disciple looks like. You can correlate that list with Jesus. And you can see that he is the center of the blessed life. Not only because he has taught it and invited us into it, but because he is the exemplar, that he is the embodiment of the blessed life and he calls you into it. The context of the blessed life is the kingdom of heaven. The meaning of the blessed life is to understand blessed as happy, flourishing, and in right relations with God and others. The center of the blessed life is Jesus himself, not just a preacher of ideas, but the example and embodiment who invites us to walk with him in the kingdom of heaven. And then fourth and finally, we need to see the entrance into the blessed life. And now we arrive at this morning's text. Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. What does it mean to be poor of spirit? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Um, 
There are ways that I think this is built on that is a big rabbit trail. I'm not going to head down, I promise, where we can look at, at how these were godly poor who trusted God for everything that they had. And it does speak in some ways to an economic situation, which we can look at Luke's gospel and the Sermon on the Plain, which is very similar to the Sermon on the Mount. And we can look at how that translates over and we can talk about the economic situation of the poor in spirit. Uh, but it is a spiritual disposition. And I think that's what Jesus is highlighting here. And Matthew, in his gospel, has written for us the way that Jesus highlighted, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So I want to emphasize what is emphasized in this text. Um, Dr. David Martin Lloyd-Jones, the wonderful British preacher, said there is no one in the kingdom of God who is not poor in spirit. It is the fundamental characteristic of the Christian and of the citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And all the other characteristics are, in a sense, the result of this one. It's the entry into the kingdom of heaven. So what does it mean to be poor in spirit? There's two words used in the New Testament to talk about the poor. One word basically says this person does not own land. They don't have assets. Therefore, they have to work to keep a roof over their head and bread on the table. They don't have anything. They're basically the working poor. The working poor. That's one definition. The other definition is not talking about the working poor. It's talking about those who are so impoverished that they are destitute beggars. They've got nothing. They've got no land or assets, obviously. But they're not just the folks who need a little bit of a hand once in a while, some nice benevolence and some welfare to them just to help them get back on their feet when they've fallen upon hard times. They are those, the second definition of poor, are those who have nothing. They've got no influence. They've got no position. They've got no honor. They've got no possessions. They are reduced to begging just to survive. They are those who are totally powerless to make it on their own. Guess one which Jesus uses in this. Poor in spirit is bankrupt, unable, not just struggling along to make their own way in this world, but with the inability to do it on their own. It's the second word that he uses here. Happy, flourishing, in right relations with God and others are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. To those who have no inheritance on their own, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And they've received it. To those who understand their desperate need before God, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. To those who realize that they are powerless to make it on their own, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Happy, flourishing, and in right relations with God and others are those who can see past their material poverty and their desperation to see what they've been promised in Christ. Happy and flourishing and in right relation with God and others are those who can see past their material riches to recognize their absolute spiritual poverty before God and their great need to depend upon him. Being poor in spirit means that you understand you are bankrupt before God and that you've contributed nothing to your salvation apart from the sin that made it necessary. That's poor in spirit. 
Poverty of spirit knows that we come to God with nothing on our own, and it tells us that whatever we think we have, whatever we think we bring, we need to lay that down at the feet of Jesus. We need to empty our hands of our successes and our accomplishments and the things that we believe merit salvation, the things that we think we deserve from God, the entitlements that we have from him and for him, and we want to project upon him. We need to take those things that are in our hands and lay them down at the feet of Jesus, so that we can take hold of Christ and Christ alone with the empty hands of faith. See, we come into Jesus' kingdom with the empty hands of faith or we don't come to him at all. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Would you stand as we respond today? Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.